Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Watari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who speaks in title cards that are way too fast to read. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I would love to demonstrate that, but this is an audio format. <laughs> yeah, it's audio only. Silent film title cards do not work in an audio only format. I'm sorry. I suppose I could drop down and pretend to be a robotic voice reading a title card. At like, at, at like at radio announcer speeds or something like that. Like it, <laughs> yes, yes, I, yes. I, Sunday, 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 Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is Adam Glass. No, about, you'll no, pay about, for the whole scene, but you only need the edge. Have I ever? I've I, 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 no doubt mentioned that on the podcast before. That is the most phenomenal piece of copy I have ever heard. Oh no, in it's a radio amazing. Ad. It is absolutely. And whoever amazing. wrote it better be making millions of dollars. Yeah, you'll no, pay they're, for they're... the whole seat, but you only need the edge. It's yeah, just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. By the way, you speak in uh, super fast style cards. So yes. does so do both of these movies. <laughs> both of these movies. They don't put the title I, cards up for long enough. It's true. The, the t- it hurts. It's painful. I I like. I was like a pause button jockey for these two movies. I was like, I couldn't put the remote down. I was like, well, I know I'm going to have to stop this to read these things. I explicitly like in Borderline where all of the title cards are up for the exact same amount of time, no matter how many how words much are on it. How much text is on there? So yep. One, yep. one just says, hey, with an exclamation point, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and is up for, for just as long like as the paragraphs. one that has two sentences. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, like, my, what I really love is, um, like, it, it is it is something I love and hate simultaneously is Body and Soul, where they put up the like this pretty bullshit vernacular uh oh yeah english and i'm like okay for real here though number 1 this is super racist number 2 um i'm going to need a minute here because <laughs> this is not words that i can read thank you very much Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you get access to a monthly bonus episode, and you get to vote on what bonus episode we are going to watch, what movie we'll watch for that bonus episode, rather. Uh, They are always non-Criterion films, uh, though sometimes they are Eclipse films, when we feel like cheating. Um, (laughs) Which is a lot. Which is a lot. No. I... We've watched a lot, just a really wide wide array of films over there. Uh, Aliens is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite movies we've ever watched for for it. Um, uh, I think uh, our friend Donovan Hill joined us for the Aliens episode, which is what makes it so great. But he also joined us for Ready Player One, uh, in which I think uh, we give a a spirited defense of Ready Player One in the face of... (laughs) In the face of Donovan's uh, critique of it, um, it I, I'm going to tell you something interesting about Ready Player One that is that is that is um, related to vaguely, and will interrupt the Patreon description. Oh, by all means. Um, the other day, uh, somebody on Twitter was uh, talking about like what's a movie that you love that is under fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and Stephen replied with like. Uh, with uh, 
What's the right. movie uh, he loves? I can't. I think I can't. Now you see me. Our friend yeah. Stephen Goldmeyer, who is yeah. also a Patreon supporter, has been on a few episodes and uh, specifically started supporting us on Patreon so that he could <laughs> so vote for us that. to watch. Uh, now you see me, uh, and he's on that episode as well. And he was like, "Oh well, it's fifty percent. I think it counts." Yeah. Uh, and and I was like, "Oh, I I think I could I could submit Ready Player One because like I I actually do enjoy that movie despite the fact that like." A lot of people hate it. And I went, and it's got like 75 on Rotten Tomatoes. I was like, oh. Yeah. Oh, turns I out, see. Turns out, yeah, a, turns out a general number of critics actually liked Ready Player One. Yeah. Uh, I was like, of course, I was shocked to discover that I was not in the minority, but actually in the in the majority on that one. A good amount of film critics uh, working today are also uh, in the target audience of something like that's Ready true. Player One. So, well, that's the way it works. That's the way the yeah. film industry works. Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess there's an explanation for that. Uh, but yeah, we watch a lot of really great movies. Uh, like I said, uh, you get to vote on it. Usually the, uh, the vote is themed. Um, for instance, most recent, uh, poll up, uh, based on symbiopsychotaxoplasm, uh, film oh, we watched right. for the actual podcast, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I wanted to do fourth wall or meta fictional films and put together a list of that. And from that, uh, this month's bonus will be Hell's a Poppin', a 1941 uh, musical comedy that uh, really, really breaks the fourth wall a yeah, lot. Yeah, I'm not sure it actually, I'm not actually sure it's aware of the fourth wall. <laughs> yeah, like it yeah. just sort of exists. There's, there's just no, there is no fourth wall in that movie. Um, uh, to the point, to the point where, where actors actually physically manipulate the fourth wall. Yeah, within I, that yeah film. exactly. It's, a, it's astounding, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we look forward to uh, talking about that. We'll be recording that episode right after we record this one, in fact. Uh, that's a dollar a month. You get access to that bonus, you get to vote on the bonus, and you get access to the entire back catalog of bonus episodes, uh, which are all pretty fun. For a little above that, $5 a month, we uh, we just like to thank those people on air. So big thanks to Adam Speakerman for his continued $5 a month support. Yes, thank you. Uh, Above that, we do something that I think is really special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. And I get it printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note or a final musing about the film, you know, after I've actually thought about it for more than two days. Because um, <laughs> that's how our recording schedule works. Yep. Um, hey, that's this, the spirit two, of the podcast. Two days is generous, honestly, for yeah. me at least. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, you know, maybe an hour. I've been thinking about the film. Oh, yeah. No, for uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but at that level, uh, we also like to thank those people. You, you get the postcard and you get thanked on air. So thank you to Jason Westhaber and to Michael McGrath for your continued $10 in support. $10 and above supports, uh, rather. This week, we are continuing our Paul Robeson uh, Portraits of the Artist box set, a box set dedicated to a number of films starring Paul Robeson, the African-American singer, actor, and activist. Uh, this week, our, each, each, of the, uh, each of the four discs in this box set contains two works, uh, either a Robeson starring film or, a, in the case of last week, a Robeson starring film and a documentary about Robeson. Uh, and each is themed uh, with a single word title for the double feature. 
This week's theme is Outsider, and we'll be talking about Body and Soul and Borderline, uh, <clears throat> both silent films, uh, Borderline made in 1930 and Body and Soul made in 1925, uh, making Body and Soul Robeson's, uh, I believe his at least existent uh, film debut. Um, Body and Soul is directed by Oscar Michaud, uh, an African-American director. Uh, I believe this is his only surviving feature. Really? It might be his only surviving film, period. Or his only surviving silent film, period. Uh, <clears throat> he did live till 1951, so presumably he, he might have possibly still worked in the sound era. Borderline uh, is directed by Kenneth McPherson uh, and produced by the Pool Group. It is a Swiss film. Um, it's made in Switzerland. Uh, we'll talk more about it, but it's it's a very interesting movie conceptually. It's very avant-garde. It's it's it uses filmmaking methods that you really want to see commonly for yes. yeah. twenty to sixty years um, after this. Yeah, I mean there there yeah, there's a lot of things in there that are uh, really startling. Yeah, but it. Uh, McFer- there are also not a lot of surviving McPherson films. Uh, and in fact, this one... Uh, this one was lost for decades. Um, and was found in 1973. Uh, by, uh, by someone in Switzerland. Um, so really, no one, no one saw it for a very long Had time. Had anybody in Switzerland recently been visited by a man? <laughs> Did they find it on a bus or like in a? There is no description if it was in the closet of an insane asylum or just, or left on a bus, uh, possibly by a man. Actually, the original negatives were not found travels. until 1983. Um, wow. Though the film, uh, a copy of the film was found in the late 70s. Uh, it was discovered by a man named Freddie Bausch, possibly Bauchet, uh, who is himself a uh, film historian, uh, Swiss uh, critic and journalist. Um, presumably he was actively searching for it, but there yeah. is no, uh, there is no mention of where or how he actually found it in what I can find. But yeah. Uh, We won't... uh, Scorsese probably and his time machine. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think now that we've revealed this as a a reality, we, we really need to go back and investigate the possibility that, like, a bunch of people who discovered films... Right before that, saw a man with like big glasses <laughs> just like show up. Like, I don't know. It seems like uh, seems like this is real. Uh, Freddie Bausch actually died earlier this year, May twenty eighth, two thousand nineteen. We'll never know. I think. Uh, but uh, but by the look of him, at least in his old age, he could be Martin Scorsese in disguise. That's. I mean, that's the other possibility we haven't considered, which is yeah. he just act, act. He doesn't just plant it; he just does it. Yeah, he's just yeah. like, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, 
But like, keep in mind, if you were a time traveler whose job was to uh, make old films available to people by stealing them from the past and bringing them forward, um, you know, you you would air quotes die all the time too, <laughs> just to escape from that disguise and move. Yes, on. of course, of course. You can't. No matter how many time displaced copies of yourself exist in one time period. Uh, eventually you get tired of playing different characters. Right. It's just what happens. Uh, well, let's talk about body and soul first. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> the time travel fiction is really, it's really become my bag for this, uh, <laughs> this, for this podcast. I know it's much really. more interesting than the movies we watched, Pat. I, I mean, not right now. These movies are interesting. I just can't. It's in my head. And again, it's part of our metafiction. Right. So I don't know. It really... It's something I think about a lot, actually, even when we're not recording. So Body and Soul is uh, it's an American fic- uh, picture um, made in 1925. It is what's called a race film. Uh, race films were films produced, written, uh, primarily starring, and, uh, and produced for, uh, by and for African Americans. Um, as a usually as independence or as as sort of you know outside of the studio system certainly, um, they might have had consistent financial backing from a small independent uh, movie production studio, but they they did not have big studio. Right, backing. they weren't studio pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a genre, we talked about it a little bit last week. As a genre, they started sort of in the late nineteen tens. Uh, and the last sort of recognized raced film, I think, was made in the late 50s. Uh, so they didn't, after after the 50s and the fall of the studio film uh, sort of method of making movies in America, uh, I suppose you didn't need to explicitly make a race film. Uh, but yeah. Race film also gets applied to uh, uh, films aimed at other uh, other minority groups, um, ethnic minority groups certainly, but principally it is it was a a term made for uh, and applied to films by by and for African American audiences. Um, Oscar Michoud, who directs this, uh, directed a lot of race films and a lot of race films on similar themes. Um, he, uh, in fact, it's 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 suggested that one of the reasons he fell out of favor uh, was just uh, the uh, the Pasolini method. He just kept making movies about the same thing <laughs> so right. much. That people were like, hey, we get it. <laughs> All yeah, right. We know what you're trying to say here. Well, and also, like, if that's your bread and butter and people just don't want to watch that film anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, the show's very interesting. He, uh, this film, one of the major themes that he kept hammering on is a major distrust of black clergy as uh, representatives of a slaveholder religion. Uh, 
No, uh, there is there is good work <clears throat> in uh, what gets called black theology because white people own basic theology, apparently. Um, but work by people like uh, James Cone, uh, who uh, who deconstruct colonialist influence on uh, of Christianity and on Christianity uh, to separate it from the white supremacist version of Christianity that dominated the West and still continues to dominate the West, if we're being honest. Uh, Michaud, uh, instead of taking the Cone route, Michaud was a critiqued Christianity, period, uh, and the church um, as a uh, manipulative force, um, which is something he held in common with, say, Booker T. Washington. Uh, Booker T. Washington right. also distrusted uh, the American church, and for very good reasons. Um, you know, the uh, Christianity as the uh, the moral argument for slavery uh, existed in equal parts to Christianity as the moral argument against slavery, and uh, and it as the moral argument for slavery was the dominant uh, interpretation. For uh, centuries, um, right. yeah. yeah, and and you know, and and keep in mind that thinking about time and place is the version of Christianity that a majority of the African American community was exposed to. Yeah, during yeah the yeah. entire well, I mean, That's actually- not the dominant form that they were exposed to during the slavery period. Yeah, period. Um, like they just wouldn't have been exposed to any other version of that. Yeah, prior to the end of slavery, really. Yeah. And the, and actually, the the history of uh, the African American Church in the U.S. is is very interesting in that regard because for for years uh, segregation in the slave era would mean that there were black churches with black hi- power hierarchies. Uh, but then Denmark Vesey uh, in South Carolina uh, the uh, the Mother Emanuel Baptist Church um, was the the church that Dylan Roof uh, attacked a few years ago uh, and killed twenty people in. Was founded by a group of uh, former slaves uh, and and free blacks who ended up planning a pretty massive slave revolt. Uh, that was thwarted in the final days because uh, someone turned uh, very late in the game. Uh, the plan was actually just a massive escape of leading people down commandeering boats and sailing to Britain uh, for freedom or somewhere in the uh, Med- or Mediterranean, somewhere in the Caribbean. Um that would be a wild. That's a wild yeah. version of history. I'm enjoying right. though the idea yeah. that they made it all the way to the Mediterranean. It's like, yeah. yeah. Well, we I mean, if you're going to make it to Britain, it's not that much farther. Right? No, no, you're, you are correct about <laughs> but, that. I just like right. the idea of like. Yeah, um, but but Sicily, in fact, like. in fact, uh, Dylan Roof attacked the church on the anniversary of uh, Bessie's planned, uh, planned escape. Um, he he was familiar with that history. Even if the general public is not, um, but because of things like that, and because of like the Nat Turner um, 
stuff in Virginia, which is also very much steeped in uh, Christian slaves uh, actually reading the Bible and believing what they read and seeing the evil of the system they lived in and the perpetrators of the that evil as the evil they were. Uh, because of things like that, there was also a move to produce things like, uh, you know, you might have seen news recently of the Slave Bible, which is the New Testament with all of the bits that might suggest uh, equality among the racist removed. Uh, uh, and you get you get control of religion in equal parts. You know, it's a it's a very fine line to walk between. Well, we don't want to go to church with them, but also we can't let them have their own church. But also they have to be Christians. But also, blah blah blah. You know, it's well, all right. conflicting yeah, I mean, ideas. Uh, yeah, that, I mean you're gonna get that when when yeah. when your goal is to to do evil, you're you're willing right. to right. to bend right. that stuff a lot. Right. Uh, and to Washington and Michaud, uh, you do you do get and you actively get uh, ministers, black and white, uh, preaching a uh, a false peace of accepting your lot and not not uh, not rocking the boat, so to speak. Um, which is something you also got you get with uh, with class uh, issues as well frequently. Yep. Uh, with, and you and you also get you get even now we with race and class issues where you get that sort of like people like to double down on the idea that like oh like I like it's 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 taking a little bit in a different direction but like you'll hear those arguments like well MLK wouldn't want you to do this because like, right right blah 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 and it's like no this is like and then anytime you hear about civility or something like that yeah. that's just like. Oh, you all! Everybody just needs to shut up and right. Air quotes that it eventually happened. The thing that you want to have happen will eventually happen when it's the appropriate time or something yeah. like that. If Which you is garbage, it's just trying to get you right. to shut up and stop. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and and that is only justifiable if you read half a speech by MLK <laughs> and don't even right, read well, exactly, the rest of that exactly, single speech. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, let alone ignoring the rest of his work. It, King Jr. was a socialist. Period. That's just yeah. That's true. Yeah, and and, and well, I mean the 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 amount. Yeah, it's just, that's always right. a really startling thing when you've got people yeah. who are actively trying to like prevent you know his dream society from coming into being, like quoting him online and something. Yeah. Like, oh my god, what's happening here? But you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least one film. I don't think it was this one. Uh, but at least one film, uh, Chicago clergy criticized as being libelist. Uh, it was the Homesteader, I believe, uh, his breakout film. Um, they, the clergy called it libelist, presumably against the clergy. Having not seen the Homesteader, I guarantee it's played with the same themes as this one. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and ministers did not like it. Um, I can't imagine. I can't. Yeah. yeah. Incomprehensible to me. Uh, this movie itself actually went through a number of edits before it was allowed to be shown publicly. Uh, I believe it was uh, New York authorities who uh, who claimed that it would incite uh, crime. Um, 
Yeah. God. Yeah, the original version of Body and Soul was a nine-reel production. Uh, and when he tried to get a expedition, expedition, yeah, exhibition license uh, from the Motion Picture Commission of the State of New York, it was denied uh, on the grounds it would tend to incite crime, was immoral, and sacrilegious. Wow. Uh, so he re-edited the film twice before the commission allowed it to be shown, uh, down from nine to five reels. Uh, what we watched is based on that edited version. Uh, and the original director's cut, the full director's cut, is a lost, lost film. Well, that's uh, unfortunate. I misspoke earlier. Bloody and, Body and Soul is one of only three surviving Michoud films. Uh, but yeah. It was originally released as race films, as we discussed. It was originally released uh, to African-American audiences, exclusively to cinemas catering to African-American audiences. Uh, so for, for many years, it was just unknown to white movie makers or, my, or white movie mo- goers. Uh, this version is very interesting. So the criterion for both for both this and for Borderline, contain uh, commissioned soundtracks. Uh, and the soundtrack for this one was conditioned... Uh, I can't talk today at all. Yeah, uh, I joined the club. Yeah. The soundtrack to this one was uh, commissioned by uh, the New York Film Festival in 2000 uh, from uh, jazz artist Wycliffe Gordon. Uh, this particular version that we hear is a live recording of a 2005 performance in Savannah. Uh, but these are, both for this and for Borderline, these are recently produced uh, soundtracks of jazz artists improvising against the film, not of not trying to recreate the original soundtrack, not trying to uh, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of times when we watch silent older. movies, they're yeah, they, they they are trying to recreate what the movie right. going experience would right. be for these are audience not. members, and that's and, and I I appreciated that yeah. as a as an artistic choice. Um, yeah, that's even because, clearer. That's yeah. even clearer with Borderline. Uh, yeah, because in in Borderline, the uh, it's a BFI commission track. Uh, by Courtney Pine, who is in electric jazz. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of a lot of synth in that yeah, one. Yeah, there's and, a lot uh, of synth in that one. <laughs> and I found it really deeply fascinating. It yeah. was shocking, right? Uh, when that when that movie came out, especially since it it and I don't know, maybe I had a weird experience with this, but it had no like pre roll, right? Uh, it just like launched in the and like all of a sudden there's like electric jazz going on. I'm like. Right. I had a real deep like, what the fuck is happening right, right now moment right, right. where I legitimately was like, well, maybe there's something wrong with my copy, like, because um, with no like pre-roll and an electric synth like uh, soundtrack, I was like, okay, this can't, this is not possible. Like what I'm hearing right now and seeing right now are fundamentally impossible. So I was like hunting around. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe my sound's messed up. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm getting a weird situation where I'm getting the wrong soundtrack or something like that. And turns out, yeah. no, just right. 
just a real wild. Uh, but yeah, it fits the film in the right. sense that oh, um, yeah, yeah. The, the film is also just wildly out. Like th- that movie is, is is a real interesting thing to watch. Like it, yeah. it's hard because it is very not non-linear, but certainly doesn't prescribe its uh, uh, like uh, restrict itself to like standard storytelling practices. Right. Right. Um, and it's actually non-linear at one point, but we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, uh, I want to try and talk about these movies as separate entities in as much as we can. Uh, yeah, we'll do our best. I mean, so, it's going to be hard. So we'll focus on body and soul first or try to. Um, okay. One interesting aspect of body and soul uh, ropes in place two characters. And, yes, and I really think, I really think uh, he was probably hired to play the evil pastor and uh, and someone along production said, "No, he's too beautiful. Why would she not want to be with the with <laughs> right, the attractive, right, yeah. charismatic man?" So they're like, "Oh, uh, well, he'll play this guy's good lost twin brother, who she also falls in love with." Uh, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I <coughs> I I love that very much. Yeah. Partially, the reason I love that is because I had another crisis moment where I'm like, "That's the same person." It is. Like, yes. I was like, I was like. They don't look just all, like these are not two people who look like. That's the right. same person. Right? They do almost nothing to differentiate except for the outfit. Like well, exactly, and that's what threw me off. I was like, "Wait a minute, am I being super racist right now?" And then I like watched a little bit longer. I'm like, "Nope, nope. That's the, that's they're both yeah. rooms." And okay, oh boy, like that was a real <laughs> weird experience. Because like it's not like it's not laid out for you in any specific way. And I like they got different outfits, and then like. Considering, I, so I watched them in the wrong order, which is important. Is is important to know? Oh, wow. Uh, well, it is in the sense that I watched. I watched Borderline first, and Borderline does not, as it were, restrict itself to always making the most sense. <laughs> it does not restrict then, itself to convention, <laughs> right? And so, what happened was, is I started watching Body and Soul, and I was like. Well, maybe this is like a flashback. Maybe this dude's a teleporter. I don't know. Like maybe he's Nightcrawler. Just a, I don't a know. A quick change artist. He's uh... yeah. So it's like because like he's like you know uh, the pastor standing there at the church door, and like all of a sudden he's over in the field like walking towards us. And was like, well, I mean, maybe it's just the same guy. Maybe yeah. I yeah. don't know. Maybe this is a... and then like. And I really think Borderline did that to me. I think Borderline set <laughs> right. me mentally up to expect things to not make sense 100%. Right. I, was like, I get that. And so I was like, I guess I'll roll with it, but this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, it, it ultimately does make sense. They are meant yes, to be separate characters. I did figure it out eventually. Yeah, yeah it's it's also kind of like, uh, you know, we frequently see this same trope with uh, women uh, versus our male lead, right? Uh, where where an identical un, unrelated identical woman shows up in our main character's life after the first dies or or something else right, happens yeah. to her right yeah you know, uh, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it's happened in at least two or three films that we've watched for the collection. Right. Yeah, and I, and then we've both certainly seen that happen right. more than just in the right. collection. That's not an exclusively so, like art film behavior or something like that. It's a so to have the yeah. the the acceptable good twin who you will end up with after the bad guy is revealed to be the bad guy. Not that she was ever even in love with with the minister. Period. You know, Paul Robeson's right. character raped her. He wasn't. Eh, he wasn't. 
she was yeah, never she, interested she in him. Is scared of him. Yes, she is scared of and him that's from the start. All that she yeah. has for him. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but but she still ends up with someone who is also played by Paul Robeson. <laughs> right, right. Which I mean, <laughs> is, like again, is I think good Paul I, Robeson. I think that your argument is reasonable in yeah. what you said, and I think it could go both ways. Maybe Robeson's like, I don't want to just be this asshole over here, right? But maybe not because he does a real good job of being a charismatic asshole. Yeah. Um, he's good at that. Uh, but yeah, the yeah, I I, I like it though. It, it works well it, as the movie progresses, and once you've got a lock on that that fact, yeah, uh, it works very well. I like the fact that the like a majority of the film takes place in a mother's fugue state. Yes. Which is which yes. is deeply fascinating for me because like uh, what's the what is it? It's da- it's Dallas, right? That is the yeah. soap opera that did that, and yeah. I was like, oh my god! Like, uh, where it's wait, revealed what? that it was all just a dream. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, what? What now? I I I deeply enjoyed them pulling that at the end because I was like, wait a minute, like, okay, we, what a way to resolve this. It's like, right. all right, well, happy ending time. Yeah. The daughter's hit, not hit, dead. The money's not stolen. We've hit 90 minutes. And everything everything I learned about how evil my pastor is was actually in a dream as well. So right. but I'm so still that's mad the at wild him. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the weird thing is it's like like it it, it But it, it was true. Very right? odd Within message. the narrative it's true too, right? You know. She right. accuses yes, him and he he doesn't deny it. He uh he basically, he tries to excommunicator and then the entire congregation turns on him so you know everybody knew what was happening <laughs> they just needed someone to say it right and an important lesson about believing your daughter uh right which, yes it is which in legitimate criticism of a lot of uh christian authority structures uh rampant sexual abuse because the victims are not believed or uh or they themselves are Painted as as instigating, as it. yeah, instigating as a big problem, it, yeah. even when they're thirteen year olds. Well, I mean, th- yeah, I mean, this is a, a topic that goes really yeah. far and deep down. Probably right. not a direction we necessarily would go with this <laughs> right, podcast. Right. But a thing I've noticed that uh, for me personally, it may just be because I'm paying better attention, is an uptick of. Um, people calling out newspapers and stuff for right, headlines for, that. Yes. That imply that thirteen-year-olds are able in, to yeah. actively engage in that way, and it, or that uh, people being arrested, uh, right? And then the same like could possibly have consent. That's not the word we use for that. The person that's arresting not the them. word. Yeah. Yeah. We have a word a, for that. A push to the actually use the that. word rape. Yeah, uh, in and these it's really in the descriptions too. of these. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if there's an uptick or if I'm just it, – it's better exposed to me now or whatever. But, yeah, um, yeah it's just a thing that this – yeah. That right. that all plays into the same – it's all from the same, same right. place basically. Right. Right. Um, does this movie actually use the word rape? Obviously, obviously we talk – there is a rape instance, but I don't know that uh, no, I don't think any of the does. title cards no. actually use the word rape. No, I don't think it does. Uh, I mean, like – it's as I think it's probably as plain as it can be considering yeah. the time period. Yeah, like it tells you, you have no doubt. Like and I'm sure in exactly one of the missing four roles, or, yeah, or it might reels, have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that such a thing existed. Um, but yeah, uh, an interesting aspect of it we know we know because of the 
other works he produced and, and media about him, we know uh, the director's feeling about religion. Um, I don't know Robeson's religious stance, uh, but his father was a Presbyterian minister and, uh, and also uh, born into slavery. His father escaped on the Underground Railroad at the age of 12 to be, and, and later became a Presbyterian minister um, and had, had Paul fairly late in life. Um, if he escaped slavery at age 12, that means he was no older than 12 in 1865. And Paul Robeson was uh, born in 1898. So, you know, we're talking at least 45 years old when when Robeson was born. Um, but uh, but W.D. Robeson was a Presbyterian minister, uh, which I'm sure is where uh, where Robeson draws some of the charismatic uh, preaching style of his uh, of his character here. Uh, but I don't know <laughs> I don't know if the critique of I'd hate I'd hate for Robeson to believe that his father was a criminal. <laughs> he seems to no yeah he I seems to very much respect his dad and his dad's uh, uh, overcoming slavery and and. And, uh, and and keep in mind, that, like life. as you mentioned, yeah, there this is essentially a uh, character archetype, that right? Exists. Right, right. Like, also, the the yeah. criminal charismatic preacher yeah. is and and it's to not be, a thing that he would be unfamiliar with as a as a character concept. To be fair to the character concept here, it is not a minister who is using his power for evil. It is an actual escaped convict masquerading as a prisoner <laughs> or as a preacher. Well, uh, yeah, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised if, if that would sh- it wouldn't shock me to discover if that was an edit, yeah, uh, or something along those lines. Because, like, yeah, that's fine, but that kind of ruins the story to a certain extent. That element is an element I almost actively chose to ignore. Yeah, because, like, while that's a good one, like that's a decent movie plot line, like it's less effective for than than like. The idea that power corrupts, like yeah. the idea that a person. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like, oh, this person knows that this is a powerful position, and thus being a criminal chooses to try to assume that position. Yeah, but you know, but also there are there different are, messages. There are yeah. plenty of people who uh, become ministers solely to exert that power, and there are people right. who grow up in the system and become ministers and don't really understand necessarily that they're exerting that power or that it is evil to exert that power. I feel like that uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of instances of uh, you know, sex scandals within Christianity happening now uh, where clearly, objectively, this pastor used his position to groom a congregant into having an affair with him, be it uh, statutory rape or uh, or uh, a uh, you know married adult woman, you know, right? Uh, where you know it's obviously grooming, uh, objectively. You look at what's happening, but but I think. There, there are a lot of ministers who don't view what they did as wrong because yeah, there was no active malice in what they were trying to do. They weren't using, they weren't consciously using their position of power and thinking, "I need to do X, X, and X so this woman will uh, want to have sex with me." 
Uh, it is it is just the natural flow of the power hierarchy that is established there. Right. And that itself is evil. It's very bad <laughs> that that is the natural flow. Uh, but but such an existence is an inevitability, not necessarily... Obviously, it's something ripe for con men. But even people who are not actively running a con can fall into that trap because of the nature of the power differential. Um, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, that's true. And it's bad. Um, <laughs> so... Whether or not there's a cut where Robeson's character, the the minister, was not previously a uh, a criminal, uh, he still has criminal friends who who show up, and uh, that's true. I mean, I think yeah. probably it's. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, he has to have been no matter what the cut because they they've got yeah. that guy in jail and yeah. stuff like that. And yellow yellow curly Hines. Uh, Lawrence Channel's character is meant to be a former jailmate of uh, of the minister of Isaiah. Uh, so you know when he shows up and becomes the deacon to and and is actually just recruiting dancing girls, you know, dancing girls also in quotes there. Um, yeah, yeah. Which uh, the the name of the dancing troupe is is uh, is pretty wild. What was it, it? Do you remember? It was like Cotton Jim's shoulder shakers or something right, like that. Yes, shoulder like, shakers what? is the phrase in there. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah right. Like I just, I, I have a, I have a love for that kind of weird bullshit in, in like old movies. Yeah, just, I don't know, like that. What a name. Yeah, uh, I love, uh, I love also where. Uh, uh, Mishu starts to like pour on his sarcasm about the church. Is that right? the sermon which is every black dreamer preacher's dream? Dry bones in the valley. Yep. Um, which to be to be fair to uh, the black church, uh, that is a very popular uh, uh, piece of Ezekiel uh, to be preached on within the black church. Uh, principally because it is about a restitution of a uh, uh, downtrodden race of people, right? It is about uh, restoring the literal dead uh, right. to life. Uh, and it's... Uh, it gets real complicated in history why that theology uh, is good or bad because the the move to focus on the afterlife within american christianity is part and parcel to slaveholders keeping their slaves in line and also slaveholders absolving themselves of what they are doing right. in life yeah because the <clears throat> The current world doesn't matter. The the true afterlife, where everyone gets their reward or punishment uh, for uh, for disobedience within life, uh, is uh, is what the focus on. And that change in focus is early nineteenth century. It is it is because of slavery. 
that that change in focus enters right. into Christianity and and, and continues on today and like continues on today. That focus right. being a major part right. and and a right. lot of very like dangerous. Oh yeah, decision making yeah. stemming from that. Oh as hell it yes, goes forward uh, so. in international policy as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, this idea that uh, you know it doesn't matter what we do in this life because uh, God's going to return and uh, and fix everything. And there's going to be a new heaven and new earth, and and you know it's all going to be, you know, burn it down because, yeah. Uh, it, it turns out actually, uh, Paul in uh, the New Testament writes specifically against that uh, that ideology. Um, in a in a frequently frequently cited passage, uh, because it is Paul talking about a group of people. Uh, I believe in Thessalonians, if I remember correctly, uh, where uh, he says, remember the rule we had with you. If you don't work, you don't eat, uh, is basically what he says. It's actually, it's it's Stalin's favorite verse of the Bible, too, uh, as it turns out. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, but the point was, uh, it's, it's used as a justification for uh, uh, overthrowing uh, welfare regulations and social safety nets you know if you don't work you can't eat it's in the bible uh but the ideology that paul was actually working against with those people were a bunch of people who were convinced that christ's second coming would happen in their lifetime uh as many in the early church would were uh and if christ was going to come back it didn't matter what they did so they just stopped doing anything and became burdens onto the other members of the church, even though they actually could have worked. Uh, and and the only thing wrong right. with them was that they were in this weird fugue state themselves. Uh, and Paul's just like, no, stop that. You can't you can't stop being in the real world just because you expect the supernatural to happen. You know, you've right. still yeah. got to do your job. You still gotta you still gotta try to make the world a better place. That's that's the whole point, right? Um, but yeah, so like I said, that uh, that change really does coincide with uh, with slaveholding Christians trying to justify the system they lived in as some amount of just, even though it is patently obvious to even people living within that system that is an unjust system, uh, right? That's uh, and you see reactions in law and in theology that reflect the acknowledgement that this is an unjust system, but it's trying to justify why it's okay that it's an unjust system, uh, and that's where racism comes from, as it turns out too. <laughs> right, because humans are assholes, or at least humans with power are assholes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's yeah. It, well, and you know, it, it's. We get into a thing where where we where these systems are sort of self replicating and and grow yeah. over time, right? Like you know, yeah. you 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 assholes raise assholes as right. a general rule, right. and yeah. and yeah, it, yeah, and and it's important as a general rule because there are plenty of people living you know within slaveholding families who grew up and said, "No, we're assholes." Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, and and, yeah. and when and, they could exercise. A, authority right. to free those slaves and yeah and we and we've talked about this in the past on here where like 
being raised to believe a thing does not absolve you of the sin of that thing. Right. Uh, period. Like you, right. you, it can give you leeway in the sense that like it took me a while to figure this out, but like yeah. being raised by racist people does not absolve you of your racism. Right. Like you are a thinking human being who is capable of deciding that the thing you are a part of is wrong. Right. Right. And, uh, and it might be harder, but it's not. But it's not impossible. Yeah. And that is that is where absolving the past as as products of their time is uh, is something we frequently talk against here because there are plenty of people within that time period who realized what was going on and talked out against it. Uh, both people in power and certainly the people underfoot, because when we talk about products of their time, particularly in a slavery era, uh, we almost always ignore the millions of African Americans who are like, "No, this is bad." Yeah, uh, right, exactly. Who clearly had opinions about what was going on right. and were ignored. Right. Uh, anyway, to get back to the film, uh, one very interesting thing about both these movies, I thought, uh, is just the uh, the joy of seeing someone known for their voice uh, act in silent films. <laughs> I know that's wild. It's right. really wild. Right. Uh, but particularly with body and soul, uh, Robeson's body language when performing the sermons uh, is just still so charismatic. <laughs> you can I, yeah. hear we him were, saying we were talking about things, this. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were talking about this before yeah. um, we started recording. But this may – he may be the most charismatic person I've ever seen on <laughs> right. screen. Right, Like, no joke. Like – I I my mind was not prepared for like um Ember Jones is good but Ember Jones is got a he's he's doing a sort of caricature in uh, yeah. in Ember Jones that kind of ruins his charis- charisma to a certain extent like yeah. it's good but like especially for me in in, in both of these movies although borderline doesn't show it off as well just because it's it's um well he's almost a minor character in borderline too right right it's really four leads so but in in um in body and soul his care his charisma is just so hyper on display it's 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 like overwhelming uh yeah it's shocking yeah another great thing about body and soul you know compared to say emperor jones or or uh uh, showboat, uh, which he would famously be in a few years after this. Uh, you know, he is playing, particularly in playing two characters, but even within his individual characters, this movie is very interested in showing the breadth of African-American existence even in a poor church in the right. South, right? You know, we've got people all over the ideological spectrum represented within this congregation and, and those people change as people too. Right. Right. They, even, even the no names in the congregation start (coughs) loving their pastor. And then as soon as it's revealed that he, there was impropriety, uh, they turn on him and, uh, and kick him out. And these aren't people who are going to leave the church or leave the church. These are people who will leave this church or find a new pastor for this church. But, uh, but yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see a, a rounded life of 
African Americans on screen right. in from a film in 1925, right? Uh, when when frequently within general uh, and w- certainly within Hollywood pictures, African Americans are stereotypes, or they are just uh, you know they're mammies or or maids or drivers or whatever you know. Race films as a genre really exist in response to Griffiths. Uh, just lost the name of D.W. Griffiths' major work, the KKK history. Birth <laughs> of a Nation? Yeah, Birth of a Nation. Um, so it's, and Birth of a Nation obviously is very uh, steeped in stereotypes, right? Right. Uh, so it's uh, it's just fascinating to see something this early that deals with African Americans as real people, even as it tells a very specific story uh, where the director has very obvious <laughs> has a very obvious agenda. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, and I mean, but you know, we that's not that's not unusual from any kind of film. Right. right? Like right. he's he's got a right. purpose for making. This and Griffith and certainly had a very obvious agenda too. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, but yeah. Um. Let's talk about Borderline. Borderline is okay. Is probably oh, stylistically, it's certainly the more fascinating of these two movies. Um, yeah, for sure, and and it really, I mean, yeah, there. Body and Soul doesn't. I mean, Body and Soul is pretty well done, uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't break a lot. It doesn't really break any filmmaking conventions uh, along the way. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's except like, except for the standard. portrayal of African Americans as real people. Well, right. But, I mean, yes. I was thinking like not cultural ones, but, but yeah. like yeah. specifically like yeah, like yeah. the the art of filmmaking. Whereas Borderline is just off the hook in that direction, like in a really pretty and powerful way. Um, the, I, a weird thing. Okay, here's a very weird thing about Borderline, though. Borderline, something about the way the film is made kept telling me visually that it was made recently right which is shocking to me like it was i i kept watching it i'm like was this made in like the year like is this a black and white film that was made in the year 2000 like what's in many ways i don't know what it is in many ways borderline feels like a remix of an older film right yes like they took footage from a 1930s silent film and recut it to make something different. And the yeah. idea that this is actually what it was meant to be from the beginning is bewildering. Yeah, it's really yeah, yeah. it's it's wild. It's it's almost incomprehensible. So when Borderline then, came out, then, yeah. When Borderline came out, Kenneth McPherson the director was 28, Scottish born, were working in Switzerland at the time. McPherson loved Eisenstein. He loved uh Pabst uh, you know, we saw uh, what uh, Pandora's box from Pabst uh, a couple months ago, uh, and it's clear looking at this stuff his influences. Right, he 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 owes a lot stylistically to both Pabst and Eisenstein. And Eisenstein was doing that sort of uh, montage, sort of quick cut sort of thing. Though I feel like even even in our experience with Eisenstein. I think particularly of the scene in Borderline where they're reaching for the doorknob and we cut back and forth and it's literally two frames. 
each, right? right? And we're cutting back and forth multiple times, you know. Just the physical labor of doing that by hand. Is, I know. I can't. But, well, but, and there were there were scenes I that have to be even fat. Like some of them yeah. were just like yeah. Some of the like that happens a bunch of times with like face cross uh, yeah. cuts like that and stuff. It's just yeah. Yeah, there are there are Michael Bay cuts in this film, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then the, and then you throw in the fact that, like they do some like screen over like some overlay where like. The old ladies like front mm. on and then from the side in the black and like yeah. the empty space and yeah. the negative space. That's like, what is good? Okay, well, that's that's a that's a family portrait shot from 1985 <laughs> right there. Right, right. It's like, what is going on in this movie? Right. It's wild. It's amazing. Um, actually, on on Eisenstein, real quick, I learned a very fascinating thing uh, in the Criterion essay for this. Uh, for Borderline, which is by uh, Ian Christie, uh, he mentions that uh, uh, Robeson also really loved Eisenstein, and Eisenstein really loved Robeson, uh, but they didn't meet until 1934. In 1934, Robeson went to Moscow to meet with Eisenstein about making a film about Tressant Louverture, the, uh, the architect of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, which never ended up happening, and damn, <laughs> that yeah, would have no, been an we, amazing we, we movie, about this right? We recorded. Yeah, I yeah. want to see that movie so bad. Yeah, yeah, Eisenstein starring Robeson making a film about the Haitian Revolution. Uh, that you know, I would, I would hope within the Soviet system at that time. Uh, making an an honest portrayal of the Haitian Revolution would be a great take that to to the West, to France, and right. to 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 America, uh, because we did not react well to the Haitian Revolution at all. Right. Uh, and and the hypocrisy inherent in the Haitian Revolution. You know, we've certainly talked about this on the podcast before. That you know, um, Louverture, uh was specifically citing the American Revolution and the French Revolution as his inspiration for the uprising. Uh, he's, you know, a uh, bunch of white people declared that they were essentially slaves and they were going to overflow their oppressors and the world heralded them. And uh, Tristan Overture was like, yeah, you know, that's right. And we're actually slaves. Uh, and uh, they rose up and those same white people the Americans and the French did everything they could to quell that rebellion. And when that finally failed to make sure Haiti never existed as a viable country, even to today, all of Haiti's problems financially stem back to the Haitian revolution and the fact that France and America used their own power to make sure no one traded with Haiti for like a hundred years, at least uh, and France even showed up with American support to demand war reparations from yeah, Haiti. Which is wild. Which yeah, is yeah. wild. Uh, you lost the war, <laughs> and then and then show up with a military force to say, "Oh, by the way, all you slaves who rose up and threw off your own bonds, you owe us for your freedom," uh, and instigated a. Uh, I think I think the initial fine was something like seventy million dollars in today's money, if not more. Jeez, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, just ridiculous. Uh, so the idea that that Eisenstein movie, the alternative universe where that Eisenstein movie exists, I hope that uh, that uh, 
Scorsese can modify his machine to jump reality. To allow jump timeline yeah. jumping. Yeah, me too. Uh, because the good news movie. is, is we'll never know because this podcast will be totally different. You're right. You're history right. rewrites itself. Oh, shoot. And and no one will know, but like Scorsese will know. Yeah. Um. So about Borderline, uh, people hated it when it came out. Unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I get, uh, shocking. Really, yeah. to discover that. Uh, the, uh, I believe it was a London paper, uh, the critic said that, uh, maybe McPherson should spend a year making commercial studio pictures before he tries something again. Uh, what a, uh, what a, what a, what a terrible thing to say about this movie. Right, right, right. This movie is so ahead of its time, yeah. uh, in so many ways, and... Not just not just stylistically and the actual film craft of this, but also in the ideology of it. You know, it is it is a critique of racism in small town Switzerland, um, which which doubles for small town anywhere and large town right. anywhere. <laughs> uh, you know, base storyline wise, a. Uh, a white guy who gets too drunk and flirts with people has sex with uh, the African American woman of the African American couple who rents a room from them, uh, and the rest of the town blames her. Right. And then, uh, then things get even more racist as as that goes along. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ada, the uh, the wife here is actually played by Robeson's real life real life wife is I combine those words. Um, yeah. <laughs> as Londa, yep, yes, you did. as Londa Robes, uh, Robeson, um, who also acted as, uh, Robeson's, uh, uh, business manager through much of his career. Um, but yeah, uh, they, uh, and we, we talked about Paul Robeson jr. Last year. This is obviously her mother, his mother, um, or last week. I really can't talk today at all. Um, yeah, well, it's okay. But yeah, she she didn't act a lot. Uh, I I think she was in a couple other movies other than this. Uh, but uh, she was an anthropologist uh, and obviously an activist too. In as much as right, you know, supporting Robeson's work and doing her own her own work. Uh, but yeah, it's. They, the affair happens. Uh, Pete, Robeson's character, and Ada try to reconcile, but ultimately she leaves. Um, and then uh, Helga Doom, or HD as she was popularly known, who she's a, she's a poet, um, plays Astrid, who is uh, who is Thorne's wife. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Thorne is the uh, the white man in the narrative. Uh, they get into a fight, and uh, she tries to kill him, and she ends up falling on the knife and dying. And then Paul gets acquitted of that murder, and then the town blames Pete for that murder. Right. And, uh, and then he gets a strongly worded... <laughs> Time to go letter. <laughs> yes, yes. Perhaps it would be very good if you did not still live in our town tomorrow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
But you are right uh, when you pointed out earlier that the title cards of this movie just go by way too fast. Um, yeah, they're just it, yeah. I can't. I had to. I had to pause so much. And like Body and Soul wasn't much better. It was pretty yeah. fast too. And, like, and Body Body and Soul is obviously complicated by the fact that it is, it is written in the vernacular, um, which it really doesn't need to be. And I really wish. No, I mean, it's I. I I don't I oh I hate that so much I yeah. really hate that so much I don't I don't know why it doesn't add anything to anything to do that um, yeah I mean it's it's the it's the breakfast at Tiffany's of title cards it's like <sighs> yeah I mean at least Bonnie and Soul Bonnie and Soul was yeah. was made by people trying to make a realistic portrayal who who are familiar with with what they're doing you know. Uh, but at the same time, I I, I can't yeah. help but feel like that's an appeal to somebody who didn't need that appeal. You right? Know what I mean, like right. that's a that's a that's a that's a a concession to somebody that like didn't need. I, I, I it still bothers me. Like that, that's, that's just nothing can be said that will make that not bother me. Like yeah. that person's even if that is the way, even if that's somehow an accurate transcription of the way that person's talking. That's not the point of language. Yeah. Like, you know, like it, it, it we, we, we've gone over this before a lot on this podcast, but like, no, because like that's, you're trying to communicate with your audience, right? Like if your goal is to communicate with your audience, you need to tell the audience what was not what, well, not how it was said, but what was said. Like the, the audience needs to know the point of the statement, not the, not like, you know what I mean? Like you can as proven by every movie ever made about Romans, like <laughs> it doesn't actually matter if it's said with the right accent. It just matters that you communicate the information right, right, right to your audience accurately. Right. Uh, and that this, the, these title cards do the opposite of that. They make it like, even if, even if somehow like let's create the ideal situation where like, that's the vernacular that like, your audience is used to hearing. They're certainly as shit not used to reading it. <laughs> right, right. How anybody who watched that movie in theaters could get through those title cards in time to understand what the character was saying, I think it's impossible, actually. Uh, maybe they just had someone reading the lines out loud. You know, we don't have the original yeah, soundtrack. Maybe, it's uh, possible. Maybe there were I mean, someone, someone it, dedicated it, in the theater. Is that that doesn't they, they, seem to that be that possibility a, definitely yeah. exists? Yeah, but I wonder if that existed with other with other silent. Have you ever heard of that happening would, in any silent film presentation? No, I haven't. But I, that, I don't think. But if you, I think if we went and looked it up, I bet it exists. I bet it existed it had too. To have existed. Yeah, or or even if it was just an ad hoc community thing, where like one person in the theater who's like really good at reading just read it. Yeah, because people being super excellent at reading. Is not been the case for a majority of America for the majority of the right. time it has been exi- in existence. Like, that's not a thing. Like, people have not been real great readers for like a really long time. <laughs> right. Also true. Uh, which, of course, is is another testament to in both these films and in in every good competently made silent film, uh, the body language and the yeah you can do it with the acting words, really yeah. Uh, is is what sells what's going on, not necessarily the title cards. Um, there is a good use of the title cards in this uh, in this in Borderline that I really love, and that's the sequence where uh, they're in the the club 
and uh, they use the N word a lot, even in the title cards. Uh, and uh, and a woman turns around and and says, "Hey," is the only thing on the title card. And then yeah. and then uh, cut back to everybody, and she says, "Why blame the Negroes?" Uh, and uh, cut back to everybody reacting to that, and she says, "When." ellipsis on the title card and then we get like a flashback in the narrative to uh thorn being drunk and being a bad husband and to his wife being a bad wife and their marriage already being in trouble and to uh to ada being bored at home while uh pete is off working and uh yeah you know she she gives all of the all of the general just relationship reasons for why this happened right and you know and to to blame <clears throat> to blame uh the black people for it happening is is not a you know one one it happened because it's a very human thing for ha- to happen but also thorn is culpable in this definitely yes Right, right. Um, which is itself a pushback to get against racist stereotypes of black women being over sexualized uh, seductresses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, borderline. Almost everyone in borderline. All of the actors are American or British, which is interesting, uh, since it's made in Switzerland and it's like made in this little enclave of uh, American and British nationals living in switzerland having this artist commune thing going on interesting yeah uh uh and it's it's almost all like everyone else everyone else in this movie is a scottish or american playwright poet or something (laughs) wow uh hd is an american uh the piano player is a scottish uh scottish poet i believe um but yeah uh this movie is also, you know, it is open in its sexual ethics. Um, it is this affair and this open marriage. Like, HG's character is definitely mad that her husband is having sex with Ada, but also is, like, at least in their first interaction, it's like she's we're introduced to her like standing in the outer room of the apartment while Ada finishes up, right? <laughs> while they finish right. up inside. And then they have a, they have this little terse conversation that, Oh, you need to go back to Pete and leave. Uh, you need to leave Paul. And, uh, and she says, uh, Oh, leave Paul for you. Ada says, um, like she likes him. Right. Obviously right. too. Right. Yeah. So, so it's kind of this open sexuality that uh, that is also groundbreaking for a film made in 1930. Uh, it's uh, and a uh, and Ada owning her sexuality in that scene specifically too, right? You know, uh, so that's interesting to see something this early as well. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of it's a very ideologically interesting film. Uh, unsurprising that it was lost until 1983. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, uh, because it was, you know, probably actively suppressed 
for a while. <laughs> and and maybe somebody found it, uh, you know, every two years when they moved. It was just in their stuff. It's like, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah want it's that thing we own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that thing. Um, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just, yeah. And McPherson's style is just, goodness. The framing, the close-ups, you know, we get close-up on Paul's hands. We get, you know, it's almost like a Cassavetes framing in a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then the quick cuts and, and a couple Dutch angles and obviously Eisenstein's influence, uh, but but McPherson's own influence on other people down the line is very clear too, right? Right. And And yeah, what's shocking to me is that like, that's true, but like also like finding out that this movie has been lost for most of the time that like movies have been being made, right, right, is really upsetting because like clearly this should have been a super influential film, like right. it just should have been, right? right? Yeah, so I don't but know. it's lost in a way where we really can't even say necessarily that that Casavetes is drawing influence from no, McPherson exactly. because Casavetes really, maybe yeah. had never seen this film, couldn't possibly have seen this film. Right, exactly. And that's really kind of upsetting to hear. Yeah. Because, like, while true is, like... But think about, like, this is one of those movies that were, like, had this been available to the, like, majority of people, like, could it have influenced filmmaking to go in an even, like, more extremely and more interesting directions? Who knows? But, like, still interesting to think about. Like, this sort of... We talked about alternative universes earlier, right? Like, this... Like where, like you know, this—that's another one to think about. Is like, what if? I mean, presumably it was lost, as we talked, as you mentioned, partially because of what it is. Yeah. But the fact that it took so long to be rediscovered means that, like, presumably at an earlier period of time, this would have been something that people would have wanted to watch. You know what I mean? Like. It stayed missing way past the sort of the point where people would have started to accept it as a thing right. that is worth watching, if that makes sense. Right. Because that's the nature of these sort of things. But uh, this could have been this specifically could have been a super influential film earlier, probably. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And and given Robeson's continued popularity, uh, it's kind of right, surprising that, that his more, earlier right work wasn't held on to uh, right yeah like even by somebody even if like yeah that that is a weird thing right because like yeah given his popularity especially overseas yeah you would have thought that somebody would have been like well like even if this is not selling right now this right. is an investment like i'm gonna hold on to this right here because like yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Like that's a weird I mean, choice to be. Like, obviously, oh, the, the dollar bin DVD industry did not exist in 1935, but uh, right, but but it but seems re- like the reshowings did. Yeah, the promoters. Like, there should have been promoters who were like, "Oh, I got this real cheap because no one liked it when it came out." But this I'm gonna hold on to this for, it, Yeah, we're yeah, gonna. I'm gonna hold on to this yeah. for a little while until I can show this again somewhere to people who might appreciate it. Right, like dude, super popular in Moscow for something. For some reason, like right. fucking like 
wait five years and go show it there. Right, right. Make a million dollars. You know what I mean? Whatever. It's like... I don't know if you make a million dollars on a film exhibition in 1930s Moscow, but I know. I'm just being ridiculous. I know. You know what I mean. Like, it is weird that nobody processed this information that way. It was like, huh, maybe I should just hold on to this and, you know, put this in the bank somewhere. Right. And wait. Super popular guy's probably not going to stop being, you know, I bought this for no money. Super popular guy's probably still going to be super popular somewhere in the future. Right. So, so yeah. Just, it's just unfortunate. Unfortunate and, and, yeah, kind of surprising that such things. Yeah. But, you know, surprising from that end and then unsurprising for both these films in that they are uh, films that are dealing directly with racism in a time where... Particularly, you know, we're we're building certainly post post war. This is more true, and we talked about it a little last week with with Robeson's problems in the fifties and having his passport revoked. Um, but even true earlier, uh, America was very interested in international in its international position, and therefore in keeping evidence of. Uh, inequality within the U.S. on the DL, um, right? Yeah, and and which is a fascinating thing when you think about the fact that yeah. like one does not have to investigate very hard to right. figure out right this this is true about the United States at the time. It is it is still weird to me that like oh we've got to we got to keep it quiet that we run a uh, we run a hyper like I don't even know how to describe right. it but like uh, yeah this. Our entire system is built on the back of oppression. Let's let's keep this on the let's keep this on the down low. Like, wait, what? Like, that's not a thing you can do. Like, that's not a thing that's going to work. Turns out, for much of its history, America's been a fascist police state, and uh, you know, yeah, and then sort of just telling itself it's not, right? And then like move going on about its day, which is which is a wild thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I said this last week, but what are what are plantations if not labor concentration camps? Right? You know, it's absolutely yeah. I yeah. mean, they are they, yeah, exactly. They are they are we, yeah. We mentioned it last week, but they are they are prisons. Yeah, where where the person's crime is being a member of an ethnic minority. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They yeah. are yeah yeah. Uh, anyway, both of these both of these movies are fascinating. I'm so happy to have to have seen them. Uh, yeah, but body and soul, fascinating for what it is, and fascinating for for Michu's career, uh, and for being Robeson's debut. Borderline, yeah, sure. yeah. hyper fascinating for just just like the film itself, yeah. like the technique and everything yeah. is just, is wild. Yeah. Right to to think that this came out in 1930 is mind blowing. Yeah, I uh, I still can't. I mean, yeah. like I I. I will. There's always a chance I will watch this movie again, yeah. and like, because I I would really like to watch it one more time to be and right. be like, oh, now I I I am fully comprehending this thing. In, uh, but boy, it it does not look like a movie made in, right in the 1930s. It in just the, doesn't. In the Wikipedia build up to talking about the critical response to this movie when it came out, the sentence is: Borderline was a film that confused and bewildered critics. And honestly, Borderline is a film that confused and bewildered me. But I mean that yeah. in the best way possible. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure, that's... Like, like, critics at the time were confused and bewildered and said, maybe you should learn how to make a movie. 
me watching this is confused and bewildered and thought, I wish I were better at watching movies. I wish I were. <laughs> this is really what I, is the way I process it. Like, man, I'm a shitty movie watcher. I gotta give, this is gonna require more than one try. Right, right, right. It's a movie that needs to be paid attention to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Body and Soul is good, and I like what it's doing. Borderline is just so far beyond anything. It's, it's a work of art that is yeah. almost beyond my comprehension. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this week, it's been Body and Soul from Oscar Michoud in 1925, and Borderline from uh, Kenneth McPherson in 1930, both starring Paul Robeson as we continue through the Paul Robeson box set, Portraits of the Artist. Next week, uh, we're doing the box-marked Pioneer with Sanders of the River and Jericho, both uh, British productions. We look forward to that and continuing through our Paul Robeson box set. Thank you once again for joining Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oriatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.